Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash Shelby Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On this episode of Coming Back, I'm speaking to Julie Clough, host of the podcast Build a Life After Loss, whose life changed on Mother's Day 2007. Also on the show this week, I'm talking about the weird phenomenon of looking like my mother, who is dead. I wonder if any of you look like someone who has died. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learn to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for listening today. Just a quick reminder that less than one week from today, Tuesday, May 14th, is my second annual podcast anniversary party. I am hosting an hour-long live Q&A in my private Facebook group called The Grief Growers Garden to celebrate two whole years of coming back. I'll be wearing my party hat, and I hope you will too, because I'm saying hello, taking your questions, and honoring two years of this little grief podcast being live on the airwaves. The party starts at 8 p.m. sharp central time, and you must be a member of the Grief Growers Garden on Facebook in order to join me. And you can always find a link to join the group in the show notes. I can't wait to see you there for the party. If you'd like even more live time with me this month, maybe to ask a question, to get some special help on a loss of your own, pledge to support Coming Back on Patreon. My next live hour-long hangout for Patreon supporters of Coming Back is happening on Monday, May 20th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Just $1 per month to keep this podcast on the air gets you one-on-one time with me, weekly grief journaling prompts that are released every single Monday, and so much more behind-the-scenes grief support. So if you've been on the fence about joining my my Patreon community now is a wonderful time to join. Find the link to my Patreon page in the show notes for this episode. So I want to get into something that's kind of odd, bizarre, fun, weird for the top of the show. With Mother's Day coming up, I wanted to do kind of an intro that was related to my mom because Mother's Day is like a weird holiday for me now and probably will be forever. But so much about how I interact with my mom and her death, I have shared in previous episodes and through conversations and blogs and videos. Um, And while I know that repeating myself isn't necessarily a bad thing within the context of grief support, I wanted something new-ish to talk about. So I've been brainstorming about this for probably the last two, three weeks or so. And I was struggling to connect to a topic. And then I passed by a mirror. 
And I said, oh, (laughs) I literally look just like my dead mother. So in honor of Mother's Day, my relationship with my mom and all of our griefs in general, I want to talk about the bizarre reality of looking like our person who has died. My first thought looking in this mirror was I cannot be the only person out there who looks like my deceased person. There have to be others like me. So if this is you, I hope you'll share a photo with us in the Grief Growers Garden Facebook group. I'll be sharing a picture of my mom as well for all of you to freak out about. It is, uh, it's pretty nuts. I have a photo of her at close to my age now. I have a photo of her at 24. I am 26 and it's it's kind of freaky deaky, except for the bangs. That's the only thing that's uh, different is the the 80s uh, bangs hair. Um, the, the thing I want to touch on kind of at the beginning of this is that this circumstance, this phenomenon is definitely not like mother, daughter, or even parent, child exclusive. So there are absolutely daughters who look like their dead moms and sons who look like their dead dads. But there are also siblings who look like their dead sibling, spouses who look like their dead partners, because statistically spouses tend to start to look like each other the longer that they're together in life, which is kind of fun. Uh, There are friends who look like their best friend who died. There are nieces and nephews who look like aunts and uncles or maybe other cousins and relatives. There are kids who can look like their grandparents or even grandparents. If you think about uh, adoption and, and again, that statistic about looking like the people that we spend the most time with, adopted children can start to look like their parents who have died. There are um, kids whose whose great-grandparents have died. I mean, these these visual, physical traits that get passed down through generations or even just from our physical side-by-side association with people it's not logical. It's, it's just not a uh, sense making how it irons out. And from what I've heard from grieving people who I've asked, this isn't really gender or age exclusive either, which is really interesting. So there's no hard and fast rule about who gets to look like or who ends up looking like somebody who has died. Um, but it's a weird thing to carry. I'm, I'm just sitting with this this reality and this observation this week, because I've known it for a while. People see pictures of my mom. They're like, oh my God, you look just like your mom. But the older I get and the more I look in mirrors, I'm like, I am not just looking like my mother. I am my mother. Like I'm turning into her, (laughs) Um, which is wild. And I'm classifying it here today as both a privilege and a curse. It's hard to dichotomize it into good and bad, but I think it's both. It's one of those grief things where it's like, yes, it's this, and it's also this. There's a couple of ways that I phrase it as a privilege. Uh, I think, first of all, I thought my mom was beautiful in life. And in my appearance, I get to be reminded how she looked, reminded of how I thought she was beautiful, the things I thought that she was beautiful for. So things like her hair and her eyes and her arms and, and the way she smiled. So I get to be reminded of that when I look in the mirror. Uh, Probably the second thing, my favorite thing that I can do is I can replicate her facial expressions. And this is probably partially because I am her child. (laughs) Uh, And I can do the voice to match sometimes. I hope one day I get to dig up a clip of my mom's voice to share with all of you because it's so similar, especially in laughter to mine. Uh, And so sometimes when I wonder how she would say something or phrase something or how she'd respond or be listening to something that's going on in my life, I I have that privilege of accessing what her face or what her emotions would look like if I were to tell her a story today or to be sitting across from her. I can kind of picture as close as I possibly can what that could be like. 
Um, and then the last thing I really enjoy about looking like my mom who died is that I feel like I get to continue to honor her by living my life in something that kind of looks like her body. And I don't know if that's a weird, um, how am I trying to phrase this? I don't know if that's a weird, like poltergeisty thing of like her spirit inhabits my body. And then I live throughout the world experiencing life on her behalf through a body that kind of looks like hers. Like there's some weird kind of possession lean to that, that I hope is not ringing true here, but it's, it's kind of neat for a piece of her literally genetically, but also energetically to spend time in my body and continue forward. Like, wow, part of my mom's energy now knows um, I went to New York at the end of April, and I don't know that my mom ever got to go to Central Park, but now part of her body and part of her spirit, by way of traveling through me and my body and my spirit, has seen Central Park. So kind of like that that um, that energy of, of just getting to take her with me in the everyday, and it's a constant reminder because I look like her. Um, and, and that's kind of where I want to shift into this being a curse as well, because something that I'm afraid of is that I've seen my mom in death. And so now I I worry and I wonder, is that what I'm going to look like when I die? Or is that what's going to happen to my body when I die? And so the, the questions about mortality awareness, of course, I know I'm going to die, but now looking like my mom, am I going to look like I'm dying in the same way? And she experienced cancer as well. So she shaved her head. And so I saw what that looked like. And um, just the physical side effects of that that happened. I'm like, if I get cancer, will that be the experience that I have? Because I've seen it happen on her body. And so my my instinct as a human by association is to to think about, well, is that how it's going to be for me? And that's really interesting to to ponder. I don't know that I've ever phrased it that way before kind of gathering my thoughts for the top of the show today. Um, a second thing that's kind of strange, perhaps a curse of looking like my mom or maybe a umbrella curse of looking like a person who has died is feeling like you need to maintain it. I kind of feel a subtle pressure probably mostly for myself. I don't think this comes from any of my family members or my mom's friends or things like that. But I almost have this pressure to keep up the shrine. So to, to make sure that my hair stays long or not dye it or um, to not wear things like colored contacts or like too much crazy makeup. So I kind of feel like an obligation to continue looking like her, even though I know I will by default for the rest of my life look like my mother. I also almost feel like a pressure to continue to channel her. So I I, like maintain her appearance both on my behalf. And so that when other people look at me, they're like, oh, you're still connected to Sandy. Like you're obviously Sandy's daughter. You're obviously carrying a piece of Sandy out in the world. Um, And then the last thing that, that can possibly make this feel like a bit of a curse at times is that I can't escape it. But a lot of these things, the experiences that we're having where our body is in the moment we can change, but how our body looks and especially our faces, my face when I look in the mirror, I'm like, there's no way to really escape that my face looks like my mother. And so of all the ways I could run away from or stuff down or take a break from my grief, unless I take all the mirrors out of my house, I really can't escape the fact that I look like her. And uh, it's triggering at times, or it's frustrating at times to shut the medicine cabinet door with the mirror on the other side, see the mirror meet my face and gasp because I haven't thought about her, you know, in 10 hours. (laughs) 
<laughs> and now I'm thinking about her again because I've seen my own face. Like, it's just interesting to me that a trigger for my grief is on my very body. And I'm curious to know if this is the case for any of you two who look like a loved one or or maybe just have the traits physically of a loved one. Maybe if it's not in your face, do you see your dad's hands when you look at them? Or do you see your best friend's smile? Or do you see your sibling's hip bones? Like whatever it is that you're looking at, like what do you see that belongs to the person that died, but somehow is still there or is presenting itself on your body? I'm just really curious about this, especially coming close to Mother's Day and thinking of a way to like honor my mom, uh, I kind of already do. Like I look like her, which is something that just never, I haven't put words to it yet. <laughs> so this is my, my attempt, my tribute, my rambling about looking like my dead mom. It's an interesting place to be. It's an odd, surreal, gift. It's also sometimes a curse. It's also sometimes a thing I wish I could escape. But just like grief that that persists, I cannot. So, yeah. The weird phenomenon of looking like, physically, a person who has died. If this is a reality for you, or if this is a reality for someone in your family or friend group, someone you know, I would love... If you shared your story with us in the Grave Growers Garden, again, I'm going to be posting a picture of my mom at 24, so you can freak out about how much she looks like me now at 26, and uh, we'll see what kind of conversation and dialogue and maybe even photo sharing (laughs) we can get going. I would love to see how close we are, because we really are still, even physically, to the people we've loved and lost. Next up, my interview with Julie Clough, who lost two children in a car accident on Mother's Day, 2007. Grief is setting sail twice on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises to join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart healing craft projects, Circles of Hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea. Request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Julie Clough is a full-time entrepreneur, podcast host of Build a Life After Loss, hope giver, speaker, life coach, grief recovery specialist, and artist, but not always in that order. She's wife to a wonderful husband who brings the fun. Julie is also a mother to six beautiful children, including two angels, and she describes herself as a spectacularly young and vibrant grandma. She shares her story of the loss and grief of her two youngest children and her personal transformation in order to bring hope to others who are grieving. Julie Clough believes powerfully in the human spirit and the ability for all to rise from the ashes and create beauty. 
Just a quick note here, grief growers, that I had some technical difficulties on this call, so around 10 minutes into the interview, the sound of the L train in Chicago might be a little more noticeable than usual. Julie, thank you so much for being an avid listener of coming back and for writing me to be featured on the show. So we'll start where we start all of our shows and have you share your lost story with us. Okay. Well, in 2007, I was traveling across the country with my two youngest children who were 12, 10, and 8. And we left Texas early in the morning. And about mid-afternoon, we were hitting the border of Mississippi and Alabama. And we were enjoying our trip and just a lot of fun, really looking forward to where we were going and what we were going to do. And and I suddenly, everyone fell asleep in the car, unfortunately, including me. And I do not even remember being tired. It was Mother's Day. And I remember my daughter saying to me uh, just before this, you know, happy Mother's Day, mom, I love you. And then the next thing I know, I open my eyes and we're in the median. And when I tried to go back up on the highway, I was in an SUV, the car, it started to roll. And unfortunately, my two youngest children were thrown from the car when that happened. And um, my 12-year-old and I were still in the car in the front seat. And, um, And unfortunately, my daughter, Carrie, who was 10, and my son, David, who was eight, did not survive the accident. And it was devastating, as you can just imagine. Um, it took quite a while to kind of come back from that. That devastating loss on Mother's Day with my three youngest children. And my 12-year-old son had to have emergency surgery. Uh, we were actually all taken to Carrie and David were taken to one hospital. My older son and I were taken to another hospital. And I didn't even learn of their fate for a few hours. I was left on a striker board waiting for emergency care. And eventually someone someone came in and told me that they didn't make it. That story just absolutely breaks my heart. And as you were telling it, I I felt like of course I wasn't there, but I feel like I was watching it in slow motion. Um, yeah. And there's just, there's so much that happened in the course of, I mean, literally less than a day. And I think so many coming back listeners can relate to this fact of literally everything about my life changed overnight. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as soon as the car stopped rolling, I actually lost my eyesight as the car as the car was rolling. I hit the top of my head, and so when the car stopped rolling, I couldn't see anything. I could hear my son next to me crying, but I couldn't hear Carrie and David. And I remember thinking, my life has changed forever. I knew no matter what the outcome was that our life was changed forever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hearing that really strongly in your voice too. Mm -hmm. I want to know. The first hours, maybe the first day, even 
What was in your mind? What was swirling around in your brain? Well, it's devastating to think about, but I, I remember when I could see again, but I was, I was hurt enough that it was impossible for me to like get out of the car to go see what was happening. And we were in a smashed car and I could see out over what it felt like was I was looking out over a field and I could, I could make out, they were so far away from me. I remember thinking they were so far away and I couldn't get to them and people had stopped and there were people on the side of the road by them. And there were people bringing out blankets to kind of shield them from the sun. And I just, and I remember, and this is really hard to say, but I remember yelling over and over again, I killed my kids. I killed my kids. And it's, it's hard for me to think about having said that. And, and I think it's also just the fact that my 12 year old son was sitting there in the car with me. And that breaks my heart that he had to listen to that. I hear this instantly in your story. And when you emailed me, I, I witnessed this for you too of instantaneously, I am responsible for this. Right. And that is a, a story that so many of us will never have to live that life. Mm-hmm. And God, like you would never sign up for that life in a million years. I just, I get chills saying that, but like, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, for sure. And I just, I, I, and that, that weight was on me for months and years. And it was hard to take that heavy weight off. It was hard to kind of come, come back um, after feeling such responsibility. But my experience with other people that have experienced loss is that we all feel somewhat that weight, maybe not to that extent where it's so obvious that it was my fault, that the accident was my fault. It's a one car accident. There's no one else to blame. And we always want to try to blame someone, right? <laughs> Unfortunately. And so there, you know, there was no, there was no saying it wasn't my fault. So it was, but I do find as I talk to people, everybody has a sense of responsibility regardless of what their role was in any type of loss, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's a good description of, of responsibility feeling like a weight because there's something about loss that inherently belongs to us and nobody else. I'm wondering how how you went home after all of this happened, how how the weeks and months kind of unfolded, uh, going home with this news, kind of coping along with your 12-year-old as a witness to all of this as well. Just what did returning to... I don't even want to say like normal life because there's nothing normal about it anymore. But how did you get back into the world again? Because you guys were out on a trip too. We, so we were taken to a hospital in Mississippi 
not far from where the accident was. And it was a Sunday, it was Mother's Day, so it was a holiday. And I overheard one of the interns saying that he was just amazed that the particular doctor that was there was there to help my son. So my son had a, a severe break and he needed emergency surgery. And the doctor that was there was actually the hospital was named after his family and the procedure that my son needed was a procedure that he had pioneered. And so I don't know what else you call that except for a miracle. <laughs> and he was able to, to do that procedure for my son, but we didn't tell, we didn't tell James that the kids were gone until after he got out of surgery I, in fact, right after I found out, they wheeled me in to, to talk to him before we were both on uh, stretchers, gurneys, whatever you call that in the hospital, but they wheeled, they wheeled me in so that I could talk to him before he went into surgery. And, uh, and I basically just put on a brave face and was just like sending all the love and well wishes to him going into that surgery. So we, we didn't tell him until after he came out of surgery after a few hours. Wow. Yeah. And we were so far from home. And, and like I said, we had family and friends that just converged and we, we had a hospital room where my son and I, they actually put both of us in the same room and then it had, an unusual setup. I don't think I've ever seen anything before this like this or after, but outside of our room was like a little reception room. So it was almost like a double room, but the room in front of us was like a reception room with couches and chairs. So our family and friends just gathered there and were right there to support us. And we were in the hospital for five or six days. I can't remember the exact, but then it was, trying to get back home and one of the doctors didn't want to release my son and the other one who was the one that did the emergency surgery he basically said look this family needs to get home they have a funeral and sad circumstances but we had to set up a van in order for my son to prop up his leg and and drive back home which was which was tough which was tough it was uh, about 9 hours i think back home with him in that position and me and all of my trauma of having driven a car. I, it was hard to even get back in a car. Yeah. Yeah. That was a question that's popping in the front of my mind is what was it like to get back into a car again? It was super hard. In fact, I, I suffered from PTSD for months and it was, it was about three months before I really started driving somewhat regularly. And even then there were limitations of what I was willing to do. I think this speaks to like a larger conversation that needs to happen in the grave spirit and the world in general of all of the things that can give us PTSD. I'm remembering as you're speaking a conversation that uh, we had on the show with Megan Devine, who, who could not go near water uh, for a long time after watching her partner drown and not being able to find his body after that. And so she suffered from PTSD after that experience as well. And I think it's so important to acknowledge that this is, these events are things that our bodies remember 
and that our spirits remember and that our brains remember uh, and can really interrupt the flow of a quote unquote daily normal life. For sure. For sure. You know, in a lot of ways, it was almost a blessing that I was hurt because I, I had an excuse, even more of an excuse to really take my time in trying to get back into life, which, you know, really, I mean, honestly, it was three years before I really felt like I was part of life again. Uh, But just having that injury, it just, it gave me permission to not try to be strong for everybody around me, to have an excuse to just go lay down in my bed. Um, It was really, it was really kind of a blessing. I think to, to have been injured, even though I wasn't injured severely, obviously my spirit was far more injured than my, my body, but it is like the PTSD is like your, your body thinks that you're still in the middle of the accident. You're, you're not, you're, you're not able to really assimilate the fact that you're, that you're not in the middle of the accident anymore. And then there's all that worry and concern that goes forward. Like this could happen again. Because like mm-hmm. I said, I didn't feel tired at all. Like I have absolutely no recollection of even having the slightest fatigue. This might be phrased odd, but I'm wondering how you have managed to file this whole experience, this whole responsibility of the experience in your brain like where does it belong you know three years later five years later seven years later where does it belong in your mind now this grief and this story you know it took me a long time it took me a long time to come to terms I was really blessed with a husband that was super forgiving and did not blame me never ever ever verbally expressed any blame because the reality is nobody would ask for this. Nobody would do anything like this intentionally. And to finally kind of come to the terms that, and I know everybody doesn't agree with this, but I really do believe like it was their time. It was their time to go. And as hard as that is, and as hard as we don't want to, as much as we don't want to accept that, the alternative is as painful as not. And I've come to learn that you, you get to believe what you want to believe. <laughs> and so for me, I, I truly believe it was their time to go that, and that, and I also believe that I'll be with them again. So that's comforting. So that's, those are some of the things that have helped me to come to terms with it, but it didn't happen overnight. Like, it seriously took months and years. And I went through a couple of years of, of therapy and rapid I, um, MD, EMDR for PTSD. And, and I think that, that helped me. But it, uh, you eventually just have to come to terms. You know, and one of the things that I think really helped me too, and one of the reasons I share my story is because 
because we lose hope in these situations. And one of the things that gave me hope was that I had been through a painful divorce several years before this. I had lost my brother to suicide several years before this. And those were horrific, hard things. But I came back. Like I, I went through this terrible time and it felt hopeless at the time and it felt difficult at the time. But then I was able to. I was able to come back. I was able to live a life of joy again. I was able to come back and live a life of purpose again. And I think that gave me hope, even though this was so much more devastating than either of those, even though those were devastating, this was so much more devastating and so much harder to come back from. But I think I still had that hope because I had come back from other difficult things before. I I did have that hope that if I hung on and I continued to, work towards healing that I could come back and I could be better and I could once again, enjoy my life again. I think that's really incredible that you say that because it's almost like these previous devastating losses uh, gathered themselves as evidence that like, look, this is possible. Exactly. And that's why I share my story is because I think a lot of times the messages that is given, the messages that I see out there that are given to mothers who have lost children is your life is over. You're always going to be grieving. You're always going to be in devastation the rest of your life. And that doesn't have to be true. That doesn't have to be the case. Can you speak more on these, these concepts of believing that it was their time and believing that you'll see them again, because I, I can hear uh, some mothers listening to the show who've lost children. Who's like, no, don't tell me that. Cause I don't believe that's true for me. And I think it's so important in our grief that, that people don't tell us what the purpose is, but that we discover it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just really curious about how you came to that place for yourself, because I experienced the same thing with my mom. I don't know that I would ever say that it was her time, but I know that I wouldn't be where I was without having to survive and continue to live after her death. Uh, and I also believe that I'll see her again, but these are things that like, if somebody came up to me at the funeral and said that I would have punched him right in the face. So <laughs> yeah, so that's I'm, not I'm the time. Like, how- it's not the time to go up to someone and say, look, they're in a better place. You're going to get to see him again. It's just, it's not the time. Those are, those are all wonderful and great. And, and we can believe that at some point down the line, if we choose to, but it's, right after something like this happens is not the time to, to be talking about that. Because I really think that the person that says that is it, they, they have our best interest at heart. They really do want us to feel better and they want to offer things to help us feel better. And in their effort to help us feel better, that helps them feel better as well. But the reality is it's not the time we, we have to have the time for grief. We have to have the time for assimilation of the loss and the adjustment and everything else that our brains have to wrap around it. And, and so while those comments are all well and good, and I always feel that way too, when I talk to, to my audience, because, because I do talk about this, I never want to be another person telling them what to do 
<laughs> I think we have too much of that sometimes when people are grieving. There's a timeline that the, the general public will give to a griever. And basically, you've got a year. And then after the year, okay, it's time for you to put your big, big girl pants on and get moving. <laughs> and that's, and we can't put a timeline on something like this. But at the same time, if we're ready, if we're ready, then then we can hear those messages. And um, and so I, just speaking to my own personal belief, one of the things that carried me through was that I had a pretty strong spiritual practice. And, and I think a lot of times what happens is when we have a spiritual practice, whether that's attached to a religion or if it's meditation or whatever it is, a lot of times when we have a spiritual practice and then something devastating like this happens, it interrupts that spiritual practice. And too many times people put down the spiritual practice altogether out of anger, out of frustration, out of that feeling that this shouldn't have happened or, um, or God is, is not good or is angry with me, or there is no universe that's out for my better better betterment and that is a natural reaction for us to feel that way but for me i felt certain because it had helped me in the past go through my other losses i felt certain that i needed to continue my spiritual practice even may, even if it didn't look exactly the same as it did before i continued that and i think ultimately that really helped me and that helped me to, to come to terms with the fact that maybe it was their time to go and, and that I would be with them again. And, I, and that might not be comforting for some people, but it was for me. I can really hear that in, in the way that you speak. There's like a, there's like a foundation to that for you in your words, which is really cool. And I'm curious to know how the loss of your two kids changed or altered your spiritual practice or, and, and, or maybe if there's still a part of it for you today in some sort of ritual or, or component. Yeah, I, I think it altered it in that, you know, right after when we're, 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 we're in raw grief there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, our mind feels muddled and there's, there's a lot of confusion. So it's very difficult to concentrate on anything. And where I used to be a scripture reader, when, after the kids died, like I couldn't understand what I was reading um, because I just couldn't focus. But I, decided that it was still worthwhile for me to attempt to, to attempt to read things that were inspirational, even if I couldn't understand it. And, and so that's what I did. I would just pick up my books that in the past had inspired me and I would just read and I wouldn't read for long. And sometimes I would just hold the book because I just think that there's power just in, in holding the book. I love that visual. I don't know why <laughs> um, of just someone who is so intensely, intensely grieving, 
the loss of her kids just picking up a book and holding it. Like, I don't even know if I can crack the spine today, but maybe I can just hold it. Right. Like, as if it will somehow infuse me with hope or encouragement or strength or any of these things that we try and start to grasp for in the aftermath of loss. Like, where is it? Where has it gone? How can I bring it back? Um, possibly create it for myself. But that visual, I get chills because I... Uh, I do this too. Sometimes I'll just see titles of things in a bookstore and I'll just put my hand on the cover of the book for a minute, not thinking I can absorb all the information, although that would be like world's coolest superpower. Um, but, but just like, because, Oh look, somebody put it in words and it's there out loud and it's there if I need it. Um, yeah, a very cool comforting thing for that. So I want to kind of move into how your kids were honored uh, at their memorials and maybe in the months after their losses and kind of reacclimating to to life without them physically present and then maybe how they show up in your world today. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing was is that I homeschooled my kids for several years. So I was homeschooling at the time of this accident and my oldest daughter was in college and my second oldest daughter was two weeks from graduating from high school and leaving for college. And then I had another son that was 15. And then these, these three children that were in the car with, with me. And so we went from a family of eight at home because my daughter had been home for spring semester, my oldest, eight at home to four at home. Um, it was pretty devastating, especially since I, that's what I did. That's what I spent my days was teaching my kids and for them not to be there was pretty huge, pretty huge. And one of the, one of the advantages of that situation was that I had my boys home and we were able to grieve together in some ways. When I say together, I think we all grieve differently. So I know. I'm always cautious about saying we, we grieve together because I think everybody grieves individually. It's an individual um, experience for sure. Um, but at the same time, we were able to just be there together. And I think there's strength in numbers. Um, there were challenges in that as well, because I was very, I very much, was invested in their education. So I wanted them to have a good education, but I was grateful that they had that time where they didn't have to go straight back into school and act like everything was normal because it wasn't. And, and the accident happened in May. So we had the summer too, where we had some time to, to get through that. But I, it's hard to even explain the difference. I mean, my daughter Carrie was just a, the sweetest girl you would ever meet. She had so many friends. And my my son David was rambunctious as they come. <laughs> we <laughs> he was a card. We have so many stories. We say that the book No David was written for him. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but there's a picture book that No David and it's got this kid doing everything he shouldn't do. And we always say <laughs> he was the inspiration for that book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just it was just a really sad, lonely time, and it just took time to to adjust. 
uh, but there were there were things that I did. You know, I mentioned before. I mentioned the spiritual practice, which I really did feel like was super helpful. And the other thing that I did was I I sought professional help. I I really I went to a counselor and I I sought that help that I needed. One of the other blessings for me was that three months before the accident, a couple of my neighbors had invited me to start playing tennis on their tennis team. And as soon as I was physically able, I got back out there and started playing tennis again, which was so healing because I was moving my body and I was around friends. And that's one of the things that happens after loss is that you get disconnected from people. And some of that has to do with the way people respond to what you've gone through. And some of that has to do with the way we respond to what we're going through, where we, we pull away. Um, so that was, that was hugely helpful for me from a emotional and physical and a social aspect. Uh, I did, I had a couple of friends that had experienced major losses that were willing to listen to me without judgment. And that was super helpful. Um, I did have a therapist just a, oh, I want to say it was three weeks after the accident. My husband had the whole family go and, and meet with this therapist. And I remember him saying, don't be surprised if you have bizarre thoughts, which I thought was really helpful to understand that that was just mm -hmm. normal. Um, yeah, so those were just some of the things that I did that I'm glad that I did. I was able to talk about my kids from the beginning. I never, I never had that. I never experienced that where I was, I didn't want to bring up their name. I know that happens for some people, but I did continue to talk about them. We continued to share stories and that was very healing. It took us a long time to decide what we wanted on a headstone and and get that all together. And, and I, but I've never been, luckily, luckily, I guess, our family has never been one that visited the grave often. And I say luckily because we've moved hundreds of miles from the, there since the accident. And so it's, it's sometimes it's hard because I, I think I can't, I don't have the opportunity to go visit their grave. But the reality is when I lived 10 minutes down the road, I didn't visit their grave very often because I never felt like they were there. Like their bodies are there. But the thing, the essence that makes us a living person wasn't there. That's really interesting that you say that because I know, I think it's, it's spot on that you said that everybody's grief is different because some people are like, this is where I'm walking every single day for a year, year and a half, two years is to visit their graves. And then some people are like, they're in the ground and, you know, maybe once a year, maybe, you know, in five or six years, but not really. Um, and all of it is perfect. Like there's no judgment on how often, like how often you visit a gravesite is not a judgment for whether or not you're doing grief well. Um, and I think things like that need to be said more often because there's so much that the external world looks at us and will judge us for doing or not doing in our grief. Um, and I, you know, honestly, I, I wish that I had owned my experience more 
and and what I mean by that is I wish that I had been more willing to be who I was at that moment and not allow what I think other people are thinking or saying or doing affect me because it just adds additional, it adds an additional burden when we do that. Well, who were you that maybe you weren't allowed to be? Well, I just think that when you, when you, well, the funeral, we had almost a thousand people at the funeral. There were people there that we've never even met. We had friends whose neighbors came. We had people that flew from all over the country from my husband's work or from places that we had lived previously. Uh, People came from all ends of the States to be there at the funeral. And when it's so, when it's a, a tragedy like that, that is so public it's hard to show up again because you're, because if you show up and you're super, super sad, then you're thinking in your mind, they're thinking I'm falling apart and that I can't handle this, which honestly was true. <laughs> Let's be real. Well, right. And then if, if you're showing up and you're stoic, then you're, then you're thinking, well, people think I didn't love my kids enough and that's why I'm not upset. I mean, these are the thoughts that we have about what other people are thinking. I think if we're going to be totally honest, that's what happens is we, we put ourselves in public and we feel like we're in a fishbowl and we, it's when we get on stage, how do we act? We don't know how to act and we become uncomfortable. And when we're in that situation where we don't even know who we are and we're in, we're in this horrific situation where we're grieving and we're not even comfortable with our own emotions. And then we go out in public, then what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. Usually it's a combination of like frozen or numb or, Mm -hmm. um, kind of blunt. I'm getting this uh, visual of like a really dull knife. Like you have blunt edges all of a sudden, or everything seems like people are talking at you from behind a curtain. You're like, I don't know what you're saying. Um, yeah, (laughs) totally. That is a thing. That is a thing that totally goes through Graver's mind. And you're like, well, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't in terms of showing, emotion or reactions or things. So it's like, how do I convince people that I've got it all together, but still to be gentle with me? (laughs) Cause Mm -hmm. I'm grieving. Um, absolutely. I think that's so valid that you touched on that. Um, something I want to move into is your perspective of yourself as a, as a human, maybe Mm -hmm. as a mom, as a woman going around in the world, as a wife, um, kind of before, during and after this accident happened because from my perspective listening to your story i would think like in the blink of an eye that you would lose all faith in yourself to operate in the world to be to be capable or to be um, protective there's a lot of things coming forward that's like it sounds like maybe a lot of those identities shifted or changed as a result of this happening Absolutely. I think it's one of the most devastating parts of a loss is our loss and confidence in ourselves because it's like your, your foundation is pulled out from underneath you. And so you have to rebuild the foundation. It's a process of rebuilding that foundation. And, and what I understand now more than I ever understood before 
is that my foundation needs to be more about the qualities of who I am rather than the roles that I play in the world. Ooh, can you say that again? That's lovely. Well, I just, you know, I've, I've really, really come to understand this is that who we are as people, we are individuals with qualities and things that we are trying to develop. And we are, you know, I think of myself, I am creative. I am responsible. I am diligent. I am, I am not the business owner. That's not who I am. That's a role that I'm playing. Um, I am not, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, whatever, whatever titles we give ourselves, that is not truly who we are. Truly who we are is those qualities that we've developed in ourselves. And that's where our foundation is. That's just so well said and something that's so hard to comprehend in the aftermath of grief, because for a lot of us, for most of our lives, we have been aligning who we are with identities. Like if I am not this, who am I now? Right. It's a theme that came up a lot uh, in season four of coming back and just in season five as well is who are we now if we are no longer this? And so kind of that, that fumbling renegotiating process of having to build up the foundation under ourselves again is a lot about who are we really, or who are we still, or who are we not anymore? Um, and having to, to discard those identities that that no longer serve us or suit us or align with our nature. Um, I'm curious to get into a lot of the work that you do now as someone who coaches grieving people and as a grief recovery specialist and as someone with your own podcast as well. So how did how did that journey begin? Well, it's so interesting because when, when our loss happened, there was no Facebook. <laughs> I mean, it was brand, brand new, uh, if it was even functioning at all at that point. So it wasn't public in, in that social media sense. And I, and I, I've never been one that wanted to be super, super open about everything. And I was really trying to rebuild my identity in that, before the accident, I was one person. After the accident, I became almost 100% the mother who lost two children. And that is, I wanted to, I wanted to rebuild my life in a way that, yes, I lost two children, but that's not my identity. Mm-hmm. And so over, over the years, I've just continued to live my life and so forth. But it was really a couple of years ago when I got very, very serious about self-development. I've always been a self-development junkie. Let's just say I've read all the books uh, for years, but it was really a couple of years ago when I, I started, well, let me back up just a little bit. In 2012, I met a man who had, who had gone through some devastating experiences and was then in a position where he was helping other people that were doing, that were experiencing what he had experienced without going into a ton of detail. But I met him at this lunch and he heard my story and he walked up to me afterwards and he looked me in the eye and he said, you're supposed to do something with this. 
and it went right to my heart. And I knew he was right, but I didn't know what it was. And so I kind of went on a surge and it really was just a couple of years. I actually, I actually enrolled in school to go back to school to be a therapist. And I just, I, I realized that just was not the answer. That wasn't what I was supposed to do. And really it was a couple of years ago when I kind of hit on what I was supposed to do. And it's just been in development um, over that time. And I've just gotten more and more clear about what my role is in all of this. And, and I, so now I do a podcast for mothers who have lost children, build a life after loss is the name of it. I have a website, build a life after loss. And that is my primary function is to, to support women who've lost children. And I do that through long distance coaching mostly. Uh, and I do some local work as well. And it's been, it's really been phenomenal. It's been a, a great experience for me. It's, it's been a good experience for me to learn how to tell my story in a way that honors my children and honors my experience, but is real. And I, um, I've, I've appreciated the opportunity to be, be on the front line with, with other mothers who are experiencing the pain of loss of a child. I wonder if you could share maybe one or two tips with us for moms who have lost a child or maybe in a broader lens, anyone who's trying to tell their lost story, but maybe not quite sure how to honor their people, but still kind of protect their hearts. I wonder if you have any tips for, for beginning to share your lost story, maybe for the first time. Well, I think it's, I think it's something that develops. I think as we, as we share we get responses from people and as we get responses, then it shapes the way we share. I, one of the things I really struggled with for the first few years was people often, when you met, when you meet new people, they often will say, well, how many kids do you have? Mm. Or tell me about your kids. And then it was difficult to know, do I tell them I have six children or do I say I have four because I have four living or do I say I have six children and, and two, two that are not with us anymore? Like, how do I frame that? And it felt like every time somebody would ask me, I would answer a different way. And I started to come to realize that I answered a different way because of, because of the other person. Like, I don't even know how to describe that, <laughs> but a lot of times you'll get a feel for a person and what they are ready and willing and able to hear and not hear. And so, um, you know, I think it's just a matter of trial and error. And I do think, like I said before, I think it's so important that we just own who we are. We own our story. And when it doesn't go well, when we say something that, that maybe we get a reaction that we weren't expecting or, we get into a conversation that, that maybe is more difficult or that, that we just really didn't want to get into that. We then don't go away and beat up on ourselves that we don't walk away from that and go, what was I thinking? You know, there's no value in that. We, we just, we learn from every experience. I think that's perfect. Uh, and to go deeper into that, how do we, how do we forgive ourselves? 
when we're grieving for, you know, letting our boundaries be pressed or maybe going too deep into a conversation or even on a larger level, like maybe being the person who carried a lot of responsibility and what happened. How does forgiveness and grief start? You know, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. I, yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting because I've, because I've come through it, but it's just one of those things where we, we just have to be really, we have to get really, really clear about who we are. Too often I see people, they get disconnected from themselves in an effort to please other people or to show up in a way that is, is going to be appropriate or is going to be acceptable. We just have to get really real with ourselves. And I think, I think the need, here's my philosophy. Our, our level of support should be equal to the level of our challenge. So if we're going through a really difficult situation, then we need to find support because it is individual how we navigate the crisis or the challenge. Yeah. So it's almost like a call to, if things are really, really hard, it's not the time to isolate. It's time to call in the cavalry. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we, and, and we put so much, Oh, I could talk about this forever, but <laughs> we, we, too often we, we get too wrapped up in the way other people are responding to our loss and it just creates more pain. So if we have a really, really good friend who's not showing up for us, then we, then we get, we get hurt, which is so easy to do because we're already hurt. We're like, a griever, someone who's gone through something so difficult, they're like a person with an open wound. And so when anything else comes in their vicinity that could be construed as, as, as difficult at all becomes that much more difficult because we're this person with this open wound. But as much as we can, as much as we can forgive others of what they say and do, the better we're going to be at forgiving ourselves. And the more we forgive ourselves, the better we're going to be at forgiving others. I wonder kind of as we're coming to a close in our conversation, where people can find you to access more of these tools, maybe to come on board as coaching clients, or maybe even just listen to your podcast. Where can people find you and your work, Julie? Yeah, thank you. And, and also, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing, Shelby. Like you are such a gifted podcaster and you have helped a lot of people with your willingness to share your story and your willingness to talk to others who have gone through difficult things. Um, and I know it's not always easy. So I, I really appreciate that. I, my, my website is Build a Life After Loss. My podcast is there. And my podcast can be found on iTunes and, you know, all the other podcast applications that you use. Um, but 
yeah, it's, it's all there. Build a life after loss. I do have a, everything is by the same name. So I have a Facebook page, build a life after loss. I have a closed group that's specifically for mothers who have lost children. It's a newer group. It's build a life after loss of a child. And um, that's a closed Facebook group for, for just for women that have lost children, but the page build a life after loss, uh, anybody can get on that page and, and receive support there. Julie, I want to thank you so much for your kind words and for coming on, coming back to share your story and all of these incredible philosophies that you've made on support and forgiveness and how the people we are, are not our roles, the shoes that we fill in the day to day. I think there are a lot of remarkable lessons that can translate across grief, but really are rooted in your personal story. So just thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Julie Clough for coming on the show and sharing your story with us during this Mother's Day week. Julie came back by going to therapy, connecting to friends through tennis, and shifting her spiritual practice to hold the loss of her children. You can find a link to Julie's website where you can find her podcast called Build a Life After Loss in the show notes. To keep this little grief podcast going and receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live hangout time with me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby Join me for Coming Back's two-year podcast anniversary party by joining my private Facebook group called The Grief Growers Garden before Tuesday, May 14th. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you have a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. One-on-one grief coaching is a powerful way to sit across from your loss and say, what do you have to teach me? If you're ready to start sharing your story or you're looking for tools, exercises, and a map forward in the aftermath of loss, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching to fill out an interest form. Grief is a personal experience, but we don't have to go it alone. My heart and ears are here to witness and companion your grief story, and I would be honored to provide a foundation for you as we explore, construct, and navigate your own coming back. Find out more and get in touch for a free 30-minute consultation call at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching. Give your grief the gift of coaching at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching.